Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Stefan Kinsella, patent attorney, Austrian economist, and author of Against Intellectual Property. We talk about IP law's monarchist origins and how it's a tool for monopoly. Stefan also tells us about how information is not the same thing as physical property and how IP and Bitcoin both suffer from labor theories of value. Stefan Kinsella, how's everything going? I think it's pretty good. You don't want to be one of these types that says uh, it's going great. We're enjoying the shutdown because then everyone hates you. But we're that type. But not that I'm in favor of it, but we're doing okay. Okay, so coronavirus hasn't completely affected your life at this point? It's modified some things. It's reduced my travel time. My wife has a new car, a new car that's about a year old. and I just took it in for the oil change and I had, she has 2,000 miles on it in one year. <laughs> <laughs> so it's yeah. like, how's, that, how's that possible? Drive only 2,000 miles in a year? It's, I, I don't know. You, for six months, we haven't used it. I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's kind of crazy. All right. So you're known as somebody that's an Austrian economist that knows a lot about intellectual property law and so on. So can you give my audience sort of a background in how you got into that and what your expertise is in that area? Oh, sure. I started practicing law in 1992 or so, and I started practicing in oil and gas law, actually, and energy law and international law. But then I switched pretty soon to patent law for various reasons. It was a hot field at the time, and I have an electrical engineering background. And my wife needed to move to Philadelphia from Houston, so I needed to get out of the oil and gas field and do something else. And anyway, so I switched to IP law. And at the same time, I was also getting more interested in, in libertarian political theory and also Austrian economics. And I was starting to write in those fields sort of on the side. I had always been interested in the intellectual property issue from a political point of view because the standard arguments for it that I had heard for like from Ayn Rand and some of the others uh, never quite made sense to me. But I was just a law student and, or, a, or a college student and didn't really even understand what IP law is. IP law is a very arcane and complex and murky field dominated by specialists, sort of like other fields like bureaucratic law or administrative law, I should say, and antitrust law, tax law, things that only specialists really know a lot about. And outsiders always mangle it, which is to the advantage of the specialists, right? So when I started practicing patent law, my interest in figuring out this IP law issue from a libertarian point of view increased. And basically it was, maybe it's not a coincidence, but at the same time I passed the patent bar, I came to the conclusion that the entire patent law system and copyright law system, uh, which are types of intellectual property, I came to the conclusion that they're completely bogus and unjust and unlibertarian and anti-free market and should be abolished completely at the same time that I was starting my career in that. So I knew the law. I've enjoyed practicing it to a degree, grudgingly. I've done well at it. I understand the law, the law that I'm criticizing. And the funny thing is I'll often argue with people who defend it, but they don't even understand the law. Like they will, they'll confuse trademark and trade secret and patent law and plagiarism and copyright because they don't even know the difference. But they're defending these arcane laws that they don't quite understand even what they are. I find that bizarre. But so over the years, and I've written a lot of things in libertarian and in legal theory 
on areas outside of IP law, like uh, rights theory and contract theory and IP law itself, not the not the political aspects of it. But I've become sort of known more widely in libertarian circles because of the IP stuff, just because I kind of know it so well, because you really have to know the IP law to talk coherently about it. But you know, my main interest is in, is in other topics, actually, like rights theory and contract and um, the end which I've written on as well. In a lot of, and I've been heavily associated with the Mises Institute since about 1994, around the same time. So I've given talks there many times, and I'm very influenced by the works of uh, Rothbard and Mises and Hoppe, these types of thinkers. All right. So could you briefly sum up what's the problem with the whole idea of intellectual property at this point? I can, and there's different ways of approaching it. I wrote this article that a lot of people rely on now, which I still agree with, and it's pretty comprehensive, back in like 2000 or 98 or 99, called Against Intellectual Property. In the meantime, I have argued against it from so many different perspectives because there's so many different attacks, and I've developed different ways of explaining it, which are not in that article. And I intend to write a new book, maybe in a year or two, called Copy This Book, where I'm going to just do it all, all from scratch and incorporate all the different ways I've learned. There's different ways of explaining it, depending upon the audience, high level, low level, pragmatic. I think the best way to explain the problem with it is, number one, to understand what it is, and number two, to understand its history, and maybe number three, to understand kind of what the purpose of law and property rights are and the government and the state in the first place. So what it is, intellectual property is just a term that lawyers and politicians use and economists now to describe a group of laws, which are somewhat related, but they're all different. So patent and copyright are the two big ones. And then you also have trade secret and trademark law. And they're called intellectual property in part because patent and copyright, patents are, is a type of legislation that protects inventions. Okay, If you come up with a new invention, you get, you get a monopoly on it, like you're the only one who can make it for like 17 years roughly, something like that. And copyright protects artistic or creative expression, like movies, novels, paintings, things like that. And that lasts – Nowadays, it used to last roughly 14 years in the founding of the country, but now it lasts for the life of the author plus, I think, 70 years. So it's like well over 100 years. It's, it's insane. Now, trademark is based upon a common law doctrine where the seller of a good could identify the source of his goods by a brand or a mark. And if someone used a similar mark that would confuse consumers, he could prevent them from doing that. So some people argue that that one is kind of rooted in fraud law. It's not really, but it's a little bit, sort of. And then trade secret is is a way of keeping basically employees who leave your company with knowledge that they got that was proprietary. It's, it's a way of keeping them from spilling the beans and telling other people. So that one sort of is kind of rooted in contract law, like non-disclosure agreements. What happened was the patent system emerged from the practice of court of like kings and queens, governments granting monopoly privileges to people, like just as, a, as favoritism, like as anti-competitive mercantilism and favoritism. So like saying that this guy can, is the only guy that can sell beeswax in this town, or this guy is the only guy who can sell playing cards in this town. 
And in exchange for that favor, which gave them the ability to charge a monopoly price, you know, the king would expect loyalty in return, or maybe they'd help collect taxes. And then that process got abused by the by the monarchs in Europe and England. And so in England in 1623, they passed the statute of monopolies to try to limit this practice, to rein in the king's power to do this. But the king or the government retained the power to grant monopolies for inventions. Okay, so one part of it remained, and that's the root of the American constitutional system of granting patents. It kind of was rooted in anti-competitive, anti-free market grants of monopoly privilege granted by the state. And then copyright grew from the government and the state. The government and the church used to basically have a monopoly on what could get published because there was no printing press even, and it was all done by the scribes. And so the government and the church together could control what manuscripts and what information got printed and given to the people. They could keep heretical or dangerous thoughts out of their hands. But when the printing press came around, it became a threat to that monopoly. And so at first, the response was for the government to monopolize the printing press through what's called like the stationer's company. But when their charter ran out about a century later, they had to decide what to do. And they came up with a copyright system first embodied in the Statute of Anne of 1709 in England, which is the roots of the American copyright system. So the entire purpose of it was basically censorship. And I mean literally censorship. (laughs) It was to control what could be published. Now, they made it look like when they transformed the system from the old system of scribe control and and the stationer's company's monopoly, when they transformed that into rights of authors in the statute of Anne, they made it look like they were giving the rights to the authors. But the thing was, the right to the authors was on paper to give the authors the right to print what they wanted without government control. So even that was sold as being a way of letting authors have freedom of expression. But what happened was because the authors couldn't self-publish, there was no Amazon Kindle press thing back then. They had to still go through the publishing companies so they still had to contractually assign all their rights to the publishers. So it still resulted in the same system being continued until basically 20 years ago, 10 years ago, really, in the world. Because that's why you know Prince used to have the word slave on his chin because he had these contracts with the public, the, the music industry. And all these authors and publishers and creators – I mean the, the creators of, of songs and paintings and works like this, novels – They've been trapped by the publishing industry because of the legacy of the copyright system. So what happened was in the 1800s, the free market economists, you know, with the rise of the Industrial Revolution in Europe and in the U.S. even, they started to object to the grant of copyright and patent because everyone, all the economists said, this is in contravention to the free market. It's anti-competitive. It's a monopoly grant of privilege. They weren't called intellectual property. They were just called copyright and patent. And in defense, there was these industries that had risen up at the time that were starting to become dependent upon their monopoly privileged grants of copyright, like the publishing industry, and then certain in, certain inventive industries like aircraft and all that later on, uh, Thomas Edison, the light bulb, all these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So they fought it and they came up with a campaign to persuade the legislators and the public, let's not abolish patent and copyright After all, they're actually a type of property right, 
and everyone said, what do you mean they're, they're not a property right? Because a property right is like my house or my horse or whatever. And they said, well, it's an intellectual property right. It comes from your mind. And everyone said, well, why does it only last for 17 years instead of forever? Like if, I, if my grandfather gives me my watch, uh, his watch, I can give it to my grandson and it can last forever. Or my farm, I can keep it in the family forever. Why do these rights expire? And then they said, well, because you don't want to overdo it. It's sort of like the minimum wage. It's like when people say <laughs> – when you say, well, if you believe in a minimum wage of $17, why not make it 1000 And then the Democrat will say, well, you're just being unreasonable. It's like, no, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm pointing out that if you made it a million dollars, we would bake, we would starve the whole country. And I think these IP guys, they know that if you had an intellectual property right, a patent or a copyright that lasted forever – we would be all dead because no one could do anything because you could, you'd have to get permission to do anything. So they moderate it and they say, well, let's cut patents off at 17 years and let's cut copyrights off at 50 years or maybe 100 years. But it shouldn't last forever. That would be unreasonable. But it shouldn't be zero either. So that's where we got to where we are now. And the problem is that, to be honest, in the world, most civilian populations in most countries in the world, Outside of the West and really outside of the U.S., they're all damaged by copyright and patent law. But the West, and especially the America, has had such a strong set of special interests for the last half of a century that have argued in favor of retaining copyright and patent, namely Hollywood, okay, copyrights in movies, and the music industry, copyright in songs, and partly the software industry since they got copyright about 30, 40 years. So the special interests I was mentioning in the U.S. that have pushed the American state to push for international treaties, which have extended the reach of American-style copyright and patent law, would be the pharmaceutical – well, so in the field of copyright, it would be Hollywood for movies and the music industry for phono records and recordings, and it would be the pharmaceutical industry for patents, okay? This is why we twist the arms of China and Canada and Mexico and other countries to adopt like the Berne Convention, the Paris Convention, the Patent Cooperation Treaty, the Madrid Convention for, for trademarks. We push them to keep adopting Western South. And th this is why, by the way, you probably notice this. You've probably heard this over – I think everyone can't help to have heard it at this point in the last several months. All these politicians on both sides – they keep accusing China of IP theft, like China's – and number one, it's weird that – I mean China's not really our enemy. They're kind of an ally. They're a big trading partner, and you know they're an Asian population, and we're accusing them of theft, which is an honored thing. And we keep saying they're thieves, but no one ever specifies what they're stealing or how they're stealing <laughs> because they don't – even these guys don't understand IP law and the, so the whole thing is confused because people aren't honest or they're not experts or they're just doing the bidding of these special interest groups. In my opinion, China is actually not stealing IP. In fact, you can't steal IP even in a legal sense. Even if you, you know, not even in my libertarian anarchist we shouldn't have IP law sense. For example, if I copy uh, the latest Harry Potter book without permission, I am committing copyright infringement. But that's not stealing. It's actually making a copy. So it's, it's like literally not stealing because you know the publisher and J.K. Rowling still have their copies. All the people around the world who bought a copy still have their copies. So I'm not literally taking anything from anyone. So I'm not stealing. And the law doesn't even regard it as stealing or theft. It's copyright infringement. 
Now, you can argue policy-wise whether that should be the law. I don't think it should, but it's not stealing. And patent infringement is likewise also – it's in patent infringement, but it's not stealing. And moreover, especially in the field of patent law, these are domestic law systems. So you get an American patent or U.S. patent on an invention. It simply only extends to American territory. If China – if some Chinese company – uses the same idea they learn from a published U.S. patent and they make the identical product in China and there's no Chinese patent, then there's not even infringement. In fact, it's totally legal, and it's probably it's not even a violation of a treaty Okay, because the treaty only requires China to have a similar type of law, and then you know, most people can't afford to get a patent in all 188 countries of the world. It would take over a million dollars because it costs, you know, five, ten, twenty thousand dollars per country. So most people, what they do is they get a U.S. patent. They might get a European patent. Now they might also have to get a U.K. patent because they're not part of the European Union anymore. <laughs> I'm not sure if they're part of the still going to be part of the European Patent Convention. So it's all complicated, which is why people like me get paid a salary to do something that shouldn't be done in the first place, right? So that's a brief précis or overview of it. Does that make a little sense? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And I think essentially what you're saying is that intellectual quote-unquote property is really monopoly granted by the government. And it's not really property because it's not actually scarce. Uh, You can make infinite copies of information and you're not taking anything from anybody. You're just making a copy of it. And whether or not that's against the law or whatever is a separate issue than actually theft. I forgot to mention a couple things. If you want to go a little mm-hmm. over, a bit more in depth, but so the purpose, because I, I, I said earlier, you have to understand what IP law is, and it's basically a set of laws that are grouped together under this name intellectual property to justify them. And some people, even some Randians like Adam Ossoff and these guys, they even call them natural property rights, which is ridiculous because they expire at a certain time. And they're obviously artificial and created by statute. They're not, they didn't arise from the common law. And to understand the purpose of property rights, So basically, the way the libertarian, even the kind of old-fashioned classical liberal, the way we understand things is we live in a world of possible conflict because we live in a world of physical causation. We live in the real world, a real physical reality where there are scarce things. And by scarce, we really mean what the economists call rivalrous. We mean that there are things, the use of which are – they're useful to use in in an action to accomplish something. But their nature is that only one person can use them without conflict. Like if I have a shovel, two people can't use the shovel at the same time. So if someone wants to use my shovel, if I use the shovel, it it multiplies my effort in digging a hole. But if someone wants to use my shovel too, they have to physically take it from me. And number one, that means I can't use it anymore, so it does harm me. And number two, we would have a violent conflict over that violent squabble. So in civilization and society, we come up with what we call laws or, or even interpersonal morality. We come up with rules that say what you can and can't do. And the whole purpose of all laws ultimately is to specify one way or the other an owner of a resource, okay, of this scarce rivalrous resource and to say who the owner is. And the rules that we use basically are the original natural law rights of whoever uses something first has a better claim to it than someone else. Like if there's an unowned piece of land in the middle of the prairie and you homestead it, 
then you get to you you're the owner now, right? Or if you find an apple falling off of a tree in the middle of the commons, now you own that apple. And we also own our bodies because God gave them to us or something like that. There's different theories, but that's the the idea. And then number 2, you can transfer this by contract to someone else. So you can sell it or donate it or give it or someone can inherit it from you. So basically for every potential dispute between two people over or the type of resource that they could fight over, that is have a rivalry over or be rivals over, you could always identify the winner of that contest or the owner of the resource by asking who had it first, who'd you get it from by contract or bequest or whatever. So it's very simple. So this is what the whole – and all these things we hear about law, basically everything you hear about law, family law, tort law, property law. Even criminal law, they're all a spinning out of the details and consequences and nuances and applications of this basic principle. Now, they're not always consistent. The government comes in and passes statutes that make exceptions like patent law and copyright law and like tax law and things like that. But the whole purpose of law is to identify who owns a resource and who the owner is. Okay, and if you want to do it justly in an economically efficient way, you need to follow these basic rules that I laid out. Now, over time, what happens is because humans act and they employ these scarce resources or scarce means to achieve things in the world, they become an extension of ourselves. Like if I have a shovel, now I'm a ditch digger or whatever I am. You know what I mean? I can use this pick or this this tool as an extension of my own effort. So we start thinking of it as a property of myself. Now, if you think of another word, you could say it's a characteristic or it's a feature of myself because I extend my reach into the universe. So over time, what happens is the word property, which really just means it's my – it's proper that I own it. It's like I have the control of it. I have the rightful control of it. This word property starts being morphing, and people use it to identify with the object of the property right. Like So you'll say my car is my property, but technically speaking, if you want to be precise and avoid ambiguity, you would say the car is a scarce resource, and Jimmy Song has a property right in that resource. In other words, he's the owner of it. So when you use the word property as a synonym for the thing that you have a property right in, then the intellectual property advocates can come in, and they can confuse the issue, and they can say – well, you have a property right in the car. Henry Ford has a property right in the cars he makes because he created them. So that means you have a property right in anything that you create. So notice they've shifted the argument from resources that are contestable to anything. Thing is a general term. It's vague. Mm-hmm. And they start calling it property. So like some opponents, some of my allies on this issue, they will say something like the problem with patent law or copyright is that the things that they cover are not property. But you see, that's never the qu- the question is never is something property. The question is, is there a resource? Is there a rivalrous resource that people can contest? And then who's the owner? Who has a property right in it? That should always be the question. And once you put the question that way, you see that you see that there's just no basis for copyright or patent law because what you have is. I have a I have a factory making light bulbs, let's say. And Thomas Edison comes along and he sues me and he says, You have to stop making light bulbs. Now, the IP guy would say, 
Well, that's because you're stealing him from him, right? Because you're taking his idea, because you're using the same idea he's using, and you're infringing on his patent. So if they word it in the sense of calling this an intellectual property right, then they can use this language of stealing and theft and infringement. But if you don't get deluded by this masquerade of argument, you would simply say, wait a second. This is called the free market. It's called competition. Of course, he's making light bulbs and I'm making light bulbs too. So what if I learned about light bulbs from him? People learn from each other all the time. This is called competition on the free market. So the question is, when I sell a light bulb, have I infringed any of Thomas Edison's common law natural property rights? Have I trespassed against his factory? No. Have I violated a contract with him? No. Have I committed a tort against him? No. All you can do is point to a statute that a bunch of bureaucrats wrote down and enacted in the Congress and say, well, you're infringing on this patent. So what that means is if Thomas Edison wins this lawsuit, basically the law is giving him part of the property rights of his competitor in the competitor's factory. In other words, the competitor is no longer allowed to use their factory the way they want to use it to sell light bulbs to consumers who are willing participants in exchange. So the ultimate problem with copyright and patent is that it transfers ownership rights from people's tangible, actual physical scarce resources, like a printing press or a factory, to their competitors to help them stop you from competing with them. So it it amounts in censorship and reduction of competition. It results in oligopolies and cartels, increased prices, reduced innovation, the distortion, and the impeding of ideas and speech. So there is like literally nothing whatsoever good about patent or copyright. They should be totally abolished immediately. They shouldn't be fixed or reduced or adjusted. So it's not like the public school system. Like I'm against public schooling, but I could say that at least education is a good thing. Okay, I could understand that part of the argument. But there's like literally nothing good about patent and copyright. All they do is slow down the progress of the human race. And nowadays, copyright is even worse in the sense that it's led to governments having excuses to regulate the internet because now you have to have the six strikes and out rule and you have to have the takedown system on YouTube to enforce copyright. And you have to take down websites using ICE because they might have a bad link. So Copyright threatens freedom of speech, and it distorts culture, and it also threatens freedom of the internet, which is a very important thing, I believe. So that's a summary of the kind of theoretical problem with these laws. They're deviations from natural property rights, and they have to cost something, and they do cost something. Yeah. Well, one thing that you mentioned earlier that was uh, super interesting was that you said that the U.S. basically lobbies all of these other governments to have essentially the same patent and copyright system as they do. And that reminded me like, of a lot of these Western countries. They've done the same thing with central banking in other countries. For example, with the Bank of Japan, they made them have a separate central bank rather than have one that was very close. It seems kind of like a form of lawfare, some sort of like some form of governance imperialism or something like that, where you're forcing changes in the governance of certain industries in other countries. Could you speak a little more about why they would do that and how they go about it? Yeah. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And of course, the U.S. is the U.S. is kind of the major dominant hegemonic power in the world. And, you know, it's a mixed bag. It's in a way a great country internally, which is why we're so prosperous, or although it's getting worse. But we exert our influence imperialistically ever since World War II, basically, and even a little bit earlier. But And we've done this in other ways, too. For example, I think the Swiss have been forced to modify their sort of gold banking secrecy stuff so that the American IRS can find out which Americans are evading taxes. And then all these tax haven countries have to be careful not to be too much of a tax haven, you know, the Bahamas or whatever. And the same thing with like a child pornography and terrorism and gambling, drugs, all these things, right? So, of course, partly it's just the strongest power throws its weight around. But I think basically partly it's because – well, I'd say there's two reasons. Number one is just we're captive to special interests. Like I said, at the U.S., to simplify, it would be basically the pharmaceutical industry, Hollywood, and the music industry. These are like the big culprits. And also combined with the fact that IP and the understanding of basic property theory, like I just outlined, would be beyond the heads of almost everyone in Congress. And I mean, if you really want to know the mistake, I think the mistake was started with John Locke and perpetuated by Adam Smith and then Karl Marx. So for example, John Locke was trying to argue for some kind of natural rights of the average person, these common law rights of ownership. But his argument, he had to kind of overcome this monarchical idea that the monarchs were endowed by God with this kind of divine right of kings and all this kind of stuff. So he was like, so he kind of adopted part of their religious reasoning. He said, well, God created the universe and he gave the earth to Adam, but the stuff that wasn't being used, he gave it in commons to the human race. And therefore, everyone is a self-owner because God grants them self-ownership. And then if whatever you homestead that's not being used, now you get a property right in that. But his argument was you own yourself because God gave you ownership. By which he meant you own your body, but he said yourself, which is another misleading metaphor. And he said, if you own yourself, you own your labor because you own whatever you do with yourself. Now, if you own your labor, then if there's an unowned thing in the commons that God gave to humanity in common, then if you mix your labor with it, then you get the property right to it. Now, what he was trying to do was he was trying to separate – he was trying to make the king subject to natural law. Okay, so his goal was admirable, and his result was basically right. But his argument was that you own yourself, which you don't. You own your body, okay? And therefore, you own your labor, which you don't. Because that's like saying you own your actions. Your actions are what you do with something that you own. But anyway, but once you say you own your labor, and then you own things you mix it with because they were unowned before, and so now your labor is intertwined. Something you own, your labor, is intertwined with this unowned thing, so – you have to be the owner because no one else can. So that was his convoluted argument. But of course, you can see in that argument the seeds of what Adam Smith relied on later when he had – you can call the labor theory of, of value. right? So this was like the labor theory of property, of Locke. But then Adam Smith and later Ricardo and then Karl Marx did a version of that called the labor theory of value. So they said, well, a worker – owns his self. He owns his labor. So he owns whatever he creates with his labor. So the capitalist is exploiting him when he, he makes a profit because if the capitalist makes a profit, he must be taking something away from the value of the thing that the laborer created. 
And therefore, you have socialism and communism and Marxism. I mean, I'm not joking. So, or you have, at best, you have a Western system which doesn't go all the way on this because they have some common sense, right? But they take bits and pieces of it, and it confuses their whole property theory for centuries, which is where we are now, which is why people say China steals our IP and why people say, well, if you create something, you own it. Now, they miss the point that you actually don't own things that you create. So what they do is they're conflating economics and political theory, and they are correct that when you expend your intellectual efforts or your labor or your efforts, you can create wealth. But creation of wealth is not creation of a property right. So for example, if I own a farm or I own a big hunk of marble or I own a big hunk of metal, and I use my efforts to transform that metal into a horseshoe or a spear right, or a plow, or I transform that marble into a statue, they might be worth more to myself or to my family or to the market. I might be able to sell it. So I've created what's called wealth, but no new property rights arose. If I own a piece of marble and I carve it into a statue, I didn't create a new thing that I'm owning because I created it. Creation just means rearranging the, the raw materials of nature, but to own the thing that comes out of it, you need to own the input factors first. right? That's why Henry Ford workers don't own the cars that they make because they're using Henry Ford's property mm-hmm. to make a new car, and they're getting paid a wage by a contract for doing this labor service. right? So once you understand all this stuff, then – so basically the source of ownership or property rights is either finding something unused and homesteading it or getting it by contract. That's it. Creation was never a source of rights, of property rights. It was only a source of wealth. So if you keep those things in mind, then you would never say, well, if I write a poem or I write a novel, I created it, therefore I should own it. It has to be the type of thing that can be owned in the first place. And a poem is a pattern of information. So this, I mean, I don't know if you want to get into Bitcoin at all, but um, (laughs) I've written a little bit on the Bitcoin issue because, and I'm a Bitcoin enthusiast, we'll say like you, but an amateur one on the outside. But I don't think it's correct to say that you own a Bitcoin, for example, because you cannot own a non-scarce thing like you alluded to earlier, which is information. Something that is just the feature or characteristic or property of an owned thing is not itself ownable. So if I own a red car, I don't own its redness. If if it weighs 3,000 pounds, I don't own its weight. If it's four years old, I don't own its age. I own the car, and it has these characteristics, right? If owning a thing meant I owned its characteristics or its properties, you could call it, that would mean I own every red object in the universe, right? That would be a way of stealing other people's red cars or whatever, or red balloons. (laughs) And likewise, information is always just the impatterning of an underlying storage medium. Now, this gets into engineering and information theory and the way that technology actually works. People forget these things, just like we forget how hard life was before technology in the so-called golden days of 3,000 years ago when they want to return to these environmentalist idiots. People start thinking of books as things, right? And uh, it's got an economic value in the market, so a book is a thing. And I can trade the book, and I can sell the book, and I can name – oh, Moby Dick is a book. Harry Potter is a book. Uh, The light bulb is an invention. Because they can conceptually name these things and because they have economic use to life, 
people start thinking, well, someone created it and whoever creates something owns it and it's got the economic value. So someone's got to own it. I guess that's what patent and copyright law do, something like that, right? But they forget that information is always never free floating. You can't just have binary digits out there in the universe. They're always at least on a carrier wave, but usually they're embedded on a storage medium, right? There's always a carrier, a physical carrier. It used to be a piece of paper with print on it, right? Or a cave wall with paint on it or a stone with chippings in it, right? Like in Egypt. And then it was a magnetic tape or it was a punch card, a piece of paper with with holes in it, a punch card, or then a magnetic tape or then a magnetic disc, right? A floppy disc and then a CD-ROM and then a DVD. And now it's hard drives and different storage servers around the world. But the point is, information is always just the shape of something. So the something is always owned by a person. And you know way more about the underlying actual technology of Bitcoin. But to simplify it, Bitcoin is basically a massive ledger that's distributed and copies of it are stored on different people's hard drives around the world, right? Thousands of these. Mm -hmm. So there's a copy of the blockchain right now on what, 10,000 servers around the world or something like that. Sure. 100,000. I don't know. Now you could call you can think of it as a ledger. I know that you guys would call them UTXOs and all, but it's basically a series of information stored on people's computers. So if I have a Bitcoin in this network, all that means is I have access to the network by the encryption system and by the password scheme and all this kind of stuff. And I'm able to manipulate it and use it to trade or to to shift these entries around only because everyone else voluntarily agrees to these protocols, right? And if they don't agree, you can split off and have a fork or whatever. But Mm -hmm. for me to own a Bitcoin would mean I own information in this ledger, which means I would own other people's computers. So, for example, if you say I own a Bitcoin, that means someone can steal it from me. I don't know if that means to steal it, but if someone steals my Bitcoin from me, theoretically, I should be able to go to a court and get the court to order everyone that's holding my stuff. Like if I lose my watch and someone finds it, someone steals my watch and then someone buys it from them and I find this watch, theoretically, I should be able to get the watch back, even though the guy holding the watch was innocent because he's holding my property. And that is how the law sort of works. There's some exceptions, but that's how it works because he basically is in receipt of stolen property. So if you call something property, that means that the government force can be used against you to make you get rid of it. So I believe, likewise, the danger of calling Bitcoin property is that the implication of that is that someone who claims that their Bitcoin was, quote unquote, stolen, could get a court order against thousands of private people around the world to go into their computers and implement this this rollback of the blockchain. Now, they're innocent parties, and they own their own computers. They don't have to abide by – in fact, that was exactly what Craig Wright wanted to do with his antitrust law, if I understand this right. He had this antitrust lawsuit he was trying to do when BSV split off from BCH. Remember this? They Mm -hmm. filed some antitrust lawsuit in Florida – based upon the grounds that when the split happened, the BCH advocates unfairly colluded together in violation of antitrust law 
to use their hashing power or something to prevent the BSP people from succeeding and dominating or something like that, right? But the point is the remedy they wanted was they want the court to tell like the main players, like the main seven people, the main miners or nodes or whatever, to tell them to replace their copy of the blockchain for BCH or BSV, I don't know which one, with another one. Now, that would be a court ordering an innocent third party to do something with their physical property that they don't want to do. So you see the implications of looking at things as property when they're not. And a lot of Bitcoiners think that when you point this out, that Bitcoin is not should not be viewed as a property right. They think that you're attacking it, right? But of course it's not. I think that the whole purpose of property rights is to give you security and the ability to use a scarce resource when you're under threat of being having it taken from you by your neighbors. And the law is supposed to try to reduce that risk. But with Bitcoin or a crypto system, the risk is almost zero anyway, because it's so the encryption system is in a way an analog of property rights. And it's even better, I think, than property rights, which is why the government hates it, of course. (laughs) So but to call it ownership, they're using the word ownership in a loose way to mean control. So in the law, in the property law, in libertarian theory, I just think conceptually, when it comes down to it, we need to distinguish between control or possession, the ability to use something in a practical way with ownership. Ownership is the legal right to a property right in something. And uh, anyway, that's my little... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, they all connect together. Yeah, no, this is really interesting because I think what you're hitting on is something that I've been thinking about for quite a while, which is that with uh, physical property, there's an actual thing. If if you steal a gold bar from me, there's actually it has to have a physical location. With information, it's very different because it can exist. It exists in the metaphysical sense, but it's not actually like a piece of paper or something. It could be written down on a piece of paper, but that itself is not the thing that's being quote unquote protected by intellectual property law. It's actually information that's out there. And like you were saying, it, it gets shaped by different people. And that's what we call that process of creating a poem or a movie or a song or anything else. The weird thing about Bitcoin is that it exists in that metaphysical informational space, but it's also scarce. So we've never really had to deal with anything like that before. And I wouldn't be surprised if like none of the laws really match up to what really should be a natural right or something like that. Well, so this is the frustrating thing. So you'll hear people say they're never for a copyright or patent abolition, but they'll say, well, we need to reform the law to match the current technology. So they don't quite get it. But the problem is that like, so the libertarian impulse, which is basically a more consistent version of the kind of the common law, Western tradition of private law rights, which was basically that you shouldn't use force or violence against someone else's body or property. You notice that there's a symmetry there. Like if you take the libertarian extreme version, like the non-aggression principle, the idea is that you can only use – you're only permitted to use force against someone in response to their use of force. So there's a symmetry. So that's why, for example, we would oppose blackmail law or defamation law. Like if I call you a name or if I lie about you or even if I threaten to reveal a secret I know about you unless you pay me money, you might call those wicked things, but they can't be outlawed because – Outlawing them means force can be used against them to stop them, but the thing I'm doing wasn't using force. So if you call me a name, I can call you a name back, but I can't shoot you. 
if you try to shoot me, then I can shoot you. So like there's a symmetry there, right? So, but the mm-hmm. point is that law is always about force. All so Rothbard in the Ethics of Liberty points out that all rights are human rights, of course, but all human rights are really property rights. And the reason is because every right or every law, and there's roughly the same things, is always the directed at some resource because every law is ultimately what we call enforceable. And the word you notice the word force is in there. I'm trying to get the symmetry here that people miss when they start calling ideas. So what I'm getting at is this. All property rights – and this is not just my libertarian perspective about what property rights there should be. I'm saying that all rights are property rights. Like mm. the object of every law is always a scarce resource, even if it's disguised. So for example, if you have a law that says everyone has a right to a house or welfare, you can say that, but the effect of the law is to basically – Tax me and give the money to you, right? Mm-hmm. So it's basically taking some of my property and taking it from me. It's a redistribution of wealth. It always is. It has to be. It's sort of like inflation of the money supply. People, you know, people that don't even understand money say, "Well, why don't we just print more money?" Mm-hmm. They don't understand that if you print more money, it results in price inflation, and price inflation reduces the purchasing power. Everyone else's money. So it basically is a subtle way of taking from them, right? Instead of being able to buy a $5,000 house, now I can only afford a $400,000 house or something like that because that 100000 extra value went to the government so they can build a battleship. Here's another example. People say things like, oh, we've had wars over religion. Hmm. No, we've never had a war over religion. What they mean is… The historical explanation of the goals of the people that decided to go to war was a religious disagreement, but that's just an explanation of why they went to war. But the war is always over physical resources. Mm-hmm. You know, If the Christians and the Muslims fight or whatever, they're fighting over physical territory, horses, women, bodies, resources. You know, I'm throwing a spear into your body, which is like me owning your body, etc. I mean… Every conflict is always a physical conflict, which means that every law is really always some kind – if it's enforceable, that is, by physical, forceful orders of the court or the legal system. It's always some kind of rearrangement or allocation of property rights, of physical things. Okay, So like that's why I said in the case of Bitcoin, it would amount to the ownership in people's hard drives being transferred to some other group. And in the case of intellectual property, if you have a copyright in a song, that basically makes me partly your slave because now you can prevent me from using my own body the way I want to to sing a song or my own factory, my own printing press to print a copy of that or, or a book. Right. So now you have ownership of that. It always has to be this way, which is why the, the question – once you focus it in on that level, then you see that the question is… Is never is this property? It's when we identify the thing that people can have a conflict over, be rivals over. It's a rival's resource. It's a, what we call a scarce resource. So what's ingenious about Bitcoin is so the word scarcity is a little bit also ambiguous because on the one hand it means lack of abundance, on the other hand it means a property of a physical rival's resource like gold, for example, or rocks, or oil under the ground, or something like that. 
And what was genius about what Satoshi did was he found a way to mimic the properties of gold, basically, right, in a digital sense. Because up until then, even e-gold and these others, if I understand them properly, the problem is they're just information systems, and you can always copy information. So it makes it hard. Now, this is a great thing about information. Like you can copy it. This is a great Mm -hmm. thing about – this is why human civilization has advanced so far is because we keep learning – from the accumulated knowledge of our of past generations, and we keep advancing because of the accumulation of knowledge, because we can learn and copy and duplicate. That's why China rose up out of poverty, and hundreds of millions of people are now above poverty because they started emulating some of the ideas that were developed a little bit earlier in the West, which is a good thing. Everyone says this is stealing, but it's not. It's a good thing. It's good that more and more people in the world do things more efficiently by using – and they learn from each other. You know, If China or Russia comes up with the coronavirus vaccine first, I don't know why Trump is upset about this. This is a good thing because the knowledge will certainly be leaked, and everyone else can do it, and we can all benefit from that. It doesn't matter who gets there first. So this is sort of the idea about intellectual property is that you can't – own a pattern of information without owning other people's resources. So anyway, a little bit digression. But but the point is what's interesting about intellectual property in this whole topic is you see how it makes you reevaluate and clarify all these concepts and find out where did we go wrong, where's the mistake, and what implications does it have for other things like contract theory, fraud theory, even the concept of plagiarism, competition on the free market. Learning, emulation, the, the source of human success, which I believe is the acquisition of knowledge, because the resources on the earth are limited and finite. But the more knowledge we have about how to use them, the richer we become, which is why the Industrial Revolution has happened, I believe. We reached a turning point, a tipping point in society, right? In the, around 1800, when we had enough information, enough people in the division of labor, enough property rights being protected in enough countries, where all of a sudden these ideas started building on each other. You had the airplane, the electric light bulb, you know, power, then all the use of oil and steam, transportation, and then electromagnetic communications, and then computing, and now we have the internet age. These are all good things, or theoretically, they're, or in principle, they're good things. Yeah, it's a tricky topic because I do think it's scarce in at least some sense of the word, but it's hard to figure out exactly how to treat it because I think you're right. There is a sense in which property is really limited to something in the physical world and violations thereof is what you can enforce. Anything in sort of the metaphysical world makes it really hard to enforce. And that's Part of what gives Bitcoin its power is that you can't take a number that's in your brain away from somebody, right? Like that's not yet. Not yet. That might be coming, but I don't think for a long time we'll be able to do that. I tried this many times, like in the past, right? With you know heretics or whatever, trying to get them to recant. I mean, with scanner or some kind of high high tech thing where you could see. But going back to sort of uh, patents and copyright and intellectual property in general, how does fiat money interact with that? Like, how does one affect the other? And like, how much of it, of the apparatus that currently exists is because of the bloat of fiat money? Yeah, that's interesting. I was about to mention that another aspect we haven't touched on much is not only a proper understanding of property rights and how all these things relate together, but also money. Like, what is money? What the function of money? Like, why can well, – what does fiat even mean, right? So fiat mm-hmm. currency. 
I don't know if there's offhand much of a relationship between fiat money and that phenomena and intellectual property themselves, probably very little, except in the kind of confused understanding of value in that, like I said, the reason people are confused about IP is because I think ultimately of this false notion that you can own labor or value because of Locke and Adam Smith and some of these earlier – and by the way, I don't blame these guys. They were – we stand on the shoulders of giants, and they were standing on the shoulders of who they could, and they advanced the field. But I do think that they were wrong, and you can see how the wrong idea can lead to – so this idea that you can own value, which is sort of the implicit in a lot of the Chicago – that's why I'm an Austrian, right? Because I think that the Austrian view on the subjective theory of value, that value is only subjective. And not only is it subjective, which means that value is not a thing. It's just basically – the result of an action. Like I value something by acting to try to get it. Like I demonstrate that's why Roth Mises talks about demonstrated preference or demonstrated value. You demonstrate that you value something when you act to achieve it. Even Ayn Rand says something similar. But to say that something has a value, that gets to this objective value idea. And then you start thinking of like, you know, like we might think of our iPhone batteries storing an amount of energy that can power your iPhone for a while. And it's almost like these mainstream thinkers imagine that you have this kind of source of value in your body and you send some of it out into the world when you create something or when you homestead something. And so that other thing is now packed with your energy or your value, and you own that value. Therefore, you own that thing. So they have all these almost mystical, metaphysical ideas, right? That really don't they're okay for explanation if you keep in mind that they're just metaphors but people lose sight of these metaphors after a while right here's my view of it from my understanding of the austrian perspective on money which by the way is amazing and great but it's old fashioned and mired in the physical world and so even some of the modern but slightly older austrians and especially the older austrians who are dead now like rothbard and mises of course, some of their writings seem to contradict, like, say, the Bitcoin phenomena, because they never could have imagined this, and they didn't take that into account in their exceptions and nuances of what they wrote. You know, If Mises might say that it's got to be a commodity, he's thinking, of course, of silver or gold or some physical commodity because he couldn't even imagine what Satoshi came up with or what the internet or cryptographic revolution could come up with. So I don't hold that against them. But even some of the old guys seemed like, oh, I don't know if it violates the regression <laughs> theorem of all this kind of stuff. The way I look at it is one thing Mises was good about was what I call his dualistic approach, which is embodied maybe best in his last book, The Ultimate Foundation of Economic Science. It's my favorite book of his. It's very short, his last one, where he distinguished – he has something called dualism. So the point of economics is to explain – implications of human purpose of action. So you can call that teleology because it's like what people as actors intend in their minds when they choose. What are the implications of the fact that they make decisions in a world of scarcity? And then on the other hand, the causal realm. Like So that's what the scientists and the physicists and the chemists do. They try to figure out these causal laws, and even engineering exploits this. right? So that's why over time… We become richer because we understand more and more about the causal world, so we enrich our causal knowledge. But the methods employed to understand each are different, right? One is more experimental and empirical, and the other is more deductivist and logical and rational and philosophical and internal too. I mean you and I both know that we have purposes and goals because we experience it. We don't need a test to prove that, and we can also prove certain laws like the law of supply and demand. 
and consequences like you know opportunity cost and even the concept of causality these are all a priori concepts that you could never disprove they're sort of the base of the scientific method anyway i'm just pointing out there's a certain dualism in mises and i think that we need something like that for separating these concepts of property like i say lots of people say the word ownership to mean the ability to control something but they're using a word that legally means the right to own so that leads to confusion okay but i think what they're doing is they're doing pragmatic and economic analysis which is fine which by the way is why i think that rothbard's concept of crusoe like alone on an island without anyone else around is a helpful starting point to isolate certain things right because say crusoe for example needs to use means scarce resources to achieve things he can make a fishing net he can build a hut he can build a fire he can catch fish you know pick berries off of a tree you know clean his wounds when he gets injured none of this requires property rights because there's no other people around to possibly take his stuff right now you could say he owns his tent but he doesn't really own it because ownership is a societal relational thing right so it's a free thing but economics still applies like everything he does has economic consequences there's still opportunity cost there's profit and loss even if it's in a psychic or subjective sense etc right so what i think happened is the way to understand money is that when you have society emerge you have there are benefits to living in society right and the benefit is that you can live with other people you're not lonely you can keep the race going you can procreate and you can have a better life because we're social creatures and you can also engage in trade okay so if you think of a pre-money society a barter society people will start exchanging and trade and so you'll have some division of labor most people are hand to mouth most people are pretty much generalists, but you have some trade. But one problem with such a society is that, number one, you have what the economists call the problem of the double coincidence of wants, which means that if I have shoes and I want ham and you have beef, you know, mm-hmm. there's a problem of matching things up. And then the other problem is economic calculation that is engaging in advanced comparison of all these different projects you can engage in for future plans to try to figure out what's the most efficient thing to do. So what happens is, according to the Austrians and others, some commodity – and by commodity, what I think they meant was some kind of physical resource that had a supply, and it was a homogenous thing that could be broken up into units, right? Mm -hmm. like gold or seashells or copper or whatever, and those things – or valued for some reason on their own, and then people start using them in what's called indirect exchange, like you know, to overcome that double coincidence of wants problem. And then you start having money prices emerge in terms of this medium of exchange, and then it gets an extra value of its own because now it's money, okay, mm-hmm. like gold or used to until the government took it over with the, you know, <laughs> government ways, you know, the things that they do. So money, and it's Mises, I think, points out, money is a unique type of good. You can think of two types of goods, capital goods and consumer goods. Consumer goods are things that people immediately want to employ for their personal value. It's sort of like the distinction between leisure and labor. Like we work so we can have parties on the weekend, right? We labor so we can leisure. You know, we save so we can consume. Likewise, there's capital goods and there's consumer goods. And the more advanced a society is, the more capital you can accumulate, and that allows you to extend the length of the production cycle for longer periods and have more, as I think Mises called the roundabout methods of production, which produces 
more goods in the long run, but you have to have lower time preference and all this kind of stuff. And you have to have property rights to do this too, right? Because you have to, you're not going to plant a tree farm that you need 23 years to make the Christmas trees from if someone's going to come take it from you, right? Mm-hmm. You're not going to even have a garden with berries and chickens if every morning you wake up and the zombies have taken them from you. I mean, you have to have some long-term security, which is what the point of property rights is. But the point is, when money emerges, it gives rise to these money prices, which comes up with a common numerical or even arithmetical way of comparing heterogeneous goods, things that are different, You know, apples and oranges. Now you can compare apples and oranges because you see what their price is on the market, and now you can compare them, and that allows economic calculation. So basically, the advent of money is a good thing in society. Mises calls this the catalactic society, right? It's a market economy with money. Okay, so now economics analyzes this. But if you think about it, money is really an economic phenomenon, not a legal one, although Mm -hmm. it usually emerges in a society that's fairly advanced that has laws. So it's going to have some property rights, which mirror what people do. Like Crusoe uses his fishing pole on his desert island. He doesn't have a property right in it, but he needs to employ means. In society, we also need to employ means, but because of the danger of conflict and theft, we come up with laws that try to minimize this. And so the laws tend to mirror the economic ways that we use things, right? But conceptually, I think we need to keep them distinct. So in my view, Money is just something that can be exchanged, but with the word exchange is in the economic sense, not the legal sense. Now, even Crusoe on his island can have an exchange like he can choose A over B because he can only choose one. You can only do one thing with your, your next hour of time or or on your little beach. You know, you can build a fire or you can build a hut. You know, you can't do them both in the same place. So there's always in a sense like an exchange idea. But among people in a barter society and then more later in a catalytic society, they can exchange. But all that means to my mind is that there's something that you can do physically that lets you have a unit of this commodity that people value in an economic sense, not a legal sense, for some reason, and they can exchange it. Now, to me, that's what Bitcoin has done, even though it is not technically speaking – you can call it scarce because it's limited in supply. But in a sense, it's not because you can have a million Bitcoin systems. I mean we already have dozens, right? <laughs> you could copy the whole blockchain and have another one, right? So there are there's Bitcoin, there's BSV. You can, but I don't know if you – they would all be centralized, so in that sense, it would be different. No, but theoretically, you could duplicate Bitcoin itself and make exact copies of it and have different Bitcoins. You could call it yeah, Bitcoin. So the bits and all that could be exactly the same, but in the sort of more metaphysical sense of centralized or decentralized, whether or not there's a single person controlling it or no single person controlling it, that you can't really copy. That's the no, really I mean, odd thing about it. I agree with it. that. Yeah, I agree. But my point is Bitcoin is scarce in the sense of within this scheme or this mm-hmm. game or this system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The way it's defined, the way it's set up, mm-hmm. there's 21 million possible bitcoins and or satoshis, however you want to, you know, make the mm-hmm. ultimate unit. But and it's very, very, very difficult to change it, right? Unlike gold, yeah. by the way, right? So theoretically, mm-hmm. you could synthesize gold, or you could an asteroid could hit the Earth, or you could mine an yeah. asteroid, or whatever. But so to my mind, the benefit of Bitcoin is it's very much like gold. I'm telling you things you know already, of course, and I'm an amateur <laughs> on this. But I think Bitcoin's genius is that. It doesn't rely upon law, really. 
And it's a cryptographic system that avoids a lot of the drawbacks of like gold, which I think used to be, you know, theoretically the ultimate type of money. But you know, there's no storage costs. You don't have to have banks anymore. Like I don't think you have to have a bank anymore. And you used no. to have a have a bank to store it, but the bank would have storage costs. And so therefore the government could come and centralize and regulate it. And also the government or the banks would then have an excuse to dupe people. Okay, let's use paper money substitutes now, which could slowly morph into the fractional reserve system that we have now. I believe that in a Bitcoin system, you know, if there's going to be any fee at all that's not just totally, totally uber trivial for having you know, a Coinbase or something like that store your Bitcoins, you just store it yourself. Technology is going to get to that. It's already there, really, mm -hmm. but it's going to get mm -hmm. to that point, right? So the whole purpose of banking so right now, banking, I believe, has been confused because – partly because of the bankers and partly because of the government involvement. But people think of banking as two functions. One is storage of your money, which it used to be when there was gold, but it's not <laughs> even storage of money because they loan it out. So they're not storing anything and also credit intermediation. right? So, mm -hmm. But I think the storage function will go away. That means that the risk of a Bitcoin banking system, if it ever emerges to dominate the dollar or whatever, the risk of it becoming a fractional reserve system is extremely remote because people would see which you know, hey, wait a second. I don't. I might loan my bitcoins to someone so they can loan it out and get me a rate of interest. But I know I'm. I don't own my bitcoins anymore. I'm making a loan to someone, right? I'm giving up my bitcoins. So that's pure credit intermediation. Although I actually personally think that even banks aren't needed for that. You can have automatic online markets and computer systems to do that anyway, right? I don't even think you need that. But and, and, and yeah, you, you would have something like an eBay, yeah, yeah. Anyway. That's my amateur Bitcoin thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. What you talked about reminded me that, like, in a sense, money is a special good in a society because it has this monetary premium, right? And if gold emerges as a commodity, it's useful right. for tooth fillings, maybe some electronics, but it's not worth nearly as much if it was used only for that. The fact that it's also used for money gives it this extra premium because it's this tradable good. Um, and in that sense, money has this extra premium that represents the value added by someone through their labor or through their creativity or through their management or something at some previous point in time. So in that sense, it's got sort of a metaphysical value added on top of its actual physical value. And that's the real odd thing about it that I think you were touching upon. Yeah. And what's interesting about Bitcoin is that it lives entirely in the metaphysical space. It's numbers and a ledger, it's information. Right. And yeah. so in that sense, I've always said that Bitcoin is actually like more ideal as a money because it isn't physical and you're not subject to physical yeah. forces like somebody taking things away from you. I agree. I, that's what I was going to say. I got distracted by my own self. But uh, yeah, so <laughs> you have two types of goods in class in economics, consumer goods and capital goods. But Mises said, well, money is sui generis, which means unique. I think what that means is like when you call something a good, you mean it's a type of thing where there's a scarce quantity and more is better. Okay. So if we have more food, that's mm -hmm. a consumer good, let's say. That's better. Mm -hmm. Because it'd be cheaper and people would have to have more food. If you have more capital goods, that'd be better. Like if aliens landed tomorrow and put little manufacturing plants in everyone's backyard, they could produce whatever they wanted. That'd be good. 
So the more, the better until it becomes pollution or garbage <laughs> or littering, and then, then it becomes a bad. But money is different because once you have enough money, any supply of the money is optimal. And this is my point about economics versus legal. Money is not wealth. Wealth is the consumer goods and to a degree the, the capital goods that produce these wealthy consumer goods that make us wealthier, makes life better. But if you increase the supply of money, you don't make people wealthier. Okay. Now, when you say things like this, the gold nuts go crazy because they think you want to ban <laughs> gold mining. Look, I don't want to ban it, but I'm admitting that when the government prints more dollars, they're basically robbing people of their purchasing power, and they're also setting in motion the business cycle, right? Which causes, which reduces our, which impoverishes us too. But when gold is mined, it's also in a way a waste. Now you could also say that Bitcoin, the electricity generated, is waste. But you know, there's always a realistic aspect of anything. But the point is, when someone finds a load of gold somewhere and they become a millionaire overnight, okay, they didn't violate anyone's property rights. There's nothing wrong with it, but it does give them the effective ability to manipulate this money system to transfer resources to themselves. So if they have a cruise ship tomorrow, that means they took those resources and they took it at the expense of everyone else, their purchasing power being lower. There's never anything for free. Now, that cost is worth paying, I believe, to have a money because money is so much more efficient than a barter society that mm -hmm. the imperfections in a gold system, let's say, are worth paying. But it's still imperfect. But Bitcoin becomes even more perfect for exactly what you're saying. Like, And here's the other thing. Gold bugs and these Austrian gold nuts, they'll say something. Well, gold is backed by real value of because gold has some uses, blah, blah, blah. But like you said, the premium is so much higher than the base value. Gold is not backed by anything. <laughs> I mean, let's say gold is really worth in a barter society or if gold is not money at all, and gold is quasi-money now, right? It has a relic. Maybe it's 5%, 10%, 1%. I don't know. But the point is, okay, so let's say it's backed by 10%. Let's say – but that's still, that's not backing it. I mean if you have $10 million in gold and it can fall down to $1 million, it's not being backed. So nothing is backed ever. Money is always this – like you say, this sort of metaphysical thing that is, is useful because it's – it's sort of like Facebook. It's the network. You know, it's a networking mm -hmm. phenomenon too, partly. Yep. Now, I think that unlike Facebook, there's a tendency, although this could be true for Facebook too, but there's a tendency, as the Austrians say, for there to be – like I think there's no reason. I don't know how much of a Bitcoin – what do you call the Bitcoin guys that only believe in the one true Bitcoin or uh, – what do you <laughs> call the maximalist? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how much of a – I think you're kind of a maximalist, right? I am. Yeah, and I think I kind of am too. Uh, so I think that there's no reason to have more than one money. And by the way, I don't believe in any of this this stupid stuff about you know the automatic contracts from Ethereum. <laughs> I just I think the purpose of money is simply to be this sui generis medium of exchange. And if it doesn't take up real resources like gold does, and there's no chance to mine more, like I think actually it's a shame that we have to keep inflating the supply of Bitcoin for the next 90 years till we get to 21 million. But I understand why psychologically we had to build that into the system to get it off the ground, right? But once we get to 21 million, it's like the Nirvana. It's like a fixed supply. In fact, it's a decreasing supply, right? Because people are going to lose them all the time. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this question. You ask, do you think <laughs> it's ever possible to increase the decimals of Bitcoin? Let, let's say in 50 years mm -hmm. and every Satoshi is worth 
$10 or something so that you can't even make small change anymore. Do you think that people would just not care about small change or they would make it with a secondary network or that, that we would increase the decimals? Well, I don't usually like guests ask me questions, but I'll answer this one. It's, <laughs> just this one. <laughs> uh, they already have that on the Lightning Network. You can go down for, I think, four or five decimal places past uh, the Satoshi. So there was an auction not too far back that Crypto Graffiti did where he sold his piece of art that he made. And it was like a beautiful swan made out of like made from pieces of a dollar bill somehow. It was actually pretty amazing. And he posted a video and everything. And he offered it to someone on the Lightning Network that would bid the lowest non-zero amount. And somebody wanted for one millisatoshi or something like that. So it is possible to go down even further if you have off-chain layer two solutions and you can settle in those. So. Okay, so you think it would be a second layer. So you don't think that the Bitcoin network itself, like even in 90 years, would have a, have a consensus change the rules to simply extend the decimal places so that... I mean, you could, but I don't think that would be... And from an engineering standpoint, that would make sense. It would make much more sense to do it on another layer than to add that complication to the base layer. But not if every Satoshi is worth a billion dollars. I mean, at a certain point... <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, you know, second layers are much more efficient in okay. certain right. just ways curious. anyway. So, I'm just curious. Yeah. I've wondered about that. Just curious what you thought. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could happen. It could happen. So, all right. Uh, final two questions. <laughs> yeah, we've uh, digressed a little bit. But uh, what's your best and worst case scenario for Bitcoin? This is something that I just ask every guest. Oh, God. Now, this is something... Like, I don't mind being asked about IP because I don't know anyone who knows more about it than me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to ask. Okay, here's what I think about Bitcoin. I'm a hodler. I have some. To me, I view it as an asymmetric speculative investment. I'm pessimistic because that's my nature as a lawyer. We always look for problems. (laughs) I think that there – let's say there are two big hurdles for Bitcoin. Number one, it's not treated as a currency. And I think this is right by, say, the main governments. And therefore, it's subject to all kinds of drags and taxes that other things are not, which is a big impediment. I would hope some country would, some country would adopt it as their currency, and then by this kind of reciprocal treaty thing that some countries do, maybe we would treat it as a currency and not subject to capital gains taxes and sales taxes and all that kind of stuff. I think that would be a big boost. Whether that's coming or not, I have no idea. I think the other big hurdle is that we have money already, and the dollar is not the best way to do it, but as money, it works perfectly fine because the purpose of money, again, is to overcome the double coincidence of wants problem to allow trade, and also to allow economic calculation. And you can do that with dollar or the euro or whatever. So it's hard to imagine this scenario. Now, I know Pierre, my friend Pierre Rochard and other people have these scenarios where they imagine how there can be some kind of gaming of the system and or just a collapse. So like, if, of course, if there's hyperinflation in the U.S., which there might be because what did we print, like $7 trillion this year effectively, <laughs> and we're not done yet. With hyperinflation starts and the currency just collapses, I could see Bitcoin emerging then because you need some money. But the problem then is Bitcoin does rely upon a sound technological internet and basis and society living and surviving. And 
I don't personally want to see society have to go to the zombies in the Mad Max world just to have Bitcoin emerge from the ashes because I don't think that's what we're – I think we'd have other bad things emerge. So my best case would be that Bitcoin somehow gets more quasi-legalized, sort of like Uber did. Like Uber's strategy was they didn't ask permission, right? They just asked forgiveness, and they just kind of emerged in the interstices or the cracks of society. And I could see Bitcoin starting to replace gold. It seems to be a little bit. It's only, what, 11 years old. It's pretty impressive what it's done. So to my mind, the best case is Bitcoin slowly becomes recognized as sort of an alternative to gold and maybe starts replacing gold as that kind of thing. And then some of these secondary payment mechanisms emerge. I don't quite understand Lightning. I get the idea. I personally don't understand why we couldn't just use the Visa network and Credit MasterCard and mm-hmm. to have a Visa card issued and denominated in Bitcoins. And you know, every customer uses the network that already exists. It takes me two seconds to spend $3 with my credit card using that system. And I don't see why they couldn't be done with Bitcoin, something like that. So I think it could be done rapidly. I mean, right now we're all hodlers because we're hoping for it to Mm-hmm. We're holding it for it to get – I mean once it plateaus, let's say it plateaus at 100,000 or a million, whatever you guys think it's going to do. At that point, the point of hodling won't be there anymore. It'll just be useful as a medium of exchange or the backbone for a medium of exchange. I guess that's my best case, and I don't want it to happen from a Mad Max rule collapse. So I'm hoping <laughs> we can – I'm hoping we have so a – that's your worst case, I guess. <laughs> Well, I don't think there was a worst case. The worst case, uh, you know, great goo or nuclear destruction, and, you know, uh, <laughs> but but that's not Bitcoin's fault. Thing, but I don't think the government can put the genie back in the bottle at this point. I think that a digital money is inevitable in human history or in human society someday. Just like it was inevitable, we would go from letters to email and, you know, from from analog to digital. It's just inevitable that we're going to go to digital money, whether it will be the first one, Bitcoin. I don't know. I tend to think it probably will because of all the reasons you've pointed out and other people. It's got these advantages, and it's the oldest, and it's the biggest, and it works fine for that purpose. So I think it will be Bitcoin. I just don't know how long it'll take. It depends upon – I mean it might depend on who wins the election in in two months. If Biden wins, he could set society back by 50 – You know. 20 years. If Trump wins, he'll only set us back by five years. I I don't know. (laughs) That's kind of my take on it. So I guess I do think the biggest drawback right now is number one, we have a money. And so it's hard to replace that network because people don't really need it. And I think you probably get this too from talking to Bitcoin cash dorks and guys at libertarian conferences who want to buy things with Bitcoin. It's like, you don't need to, you can just use dollars. In fact, if Bitcoins are going to inflate, increase in value. Why would you spend them anyway? You know, hodl. But, and then the other problem is it's a nightmare to do the taxes and to keep track of all that. So I think a big breakthrough would be like maybe if enough government employees start having Bitcoins because on the side or their grandkids have them or whatever, maybe they'll basically relax the regulations, sort of like marijuana is going to be delegalized. We all know marijuana. <laughs> Delegalization is coming on a federal level. It's I don't know why Trump doesn't jump on that bandwagon. It's going to happen in the next 15 years. Just go ahead and do it and take credit for it. But I think Bitcoin will eventually be decriminalized. But so to me, it's just a timing issue. 
And I'm not in a hurry. I love it. I love to see what's happening with it. Anyway, that's my take. Okay. All right. Uh, last question. Uh, 20 years from now, how do you think Bitcoin changes IP law, if any? And yeah, how does it change in general? Well, it's sort of like your question about fiat currency and IP. I don't see much of a connection, to be honest. The only connection would be trademark law, which is a type of IP, because you notice that there were these disputes about who I won't say who owns, but like who has the right to call themselves Bitcoin when Bitcoin Cash split off. In fact, I was myself confused for (laughs) maybe an hour when Bitcoin Cash split off. And I went online to one of the exchanges and like December, what was 2017 or whatever it was. And I saw Bitcoin Cash was like way cheaper than Bitcoin. And I thought, oh, Bitcoin's on sale, you know. Uh-huh. Now I never pulled the trigger, but I believe some people some people were confused by that, which is the alleged purpose of trademark laws to prevent consumer confusion. But you'll notice that there's no trademark on this, and people figured it out pretty quickly. There were a few people who got ripped off, and they might have sued some people, whatever. So I don't see much of a connection. Now what I do see is that I'm not an agorist or a voluntarist, really, although I think voluntarist kind of means libertarian. And <laughs> agorist means uh, techniques that operate outside the official structures to try to achieve liberty, which I'm all in favor of. And I think they're compatible with what I just call libertarianism. But I could see IP law, especially patent and copyright, gradually eroding in their grip on society because of technology. And I think they already have. So, for example, Copyright has been undermined severely by the internet because people can copy things instantly in digital technology, right? And that's only going to get better from our point of view because it's going to be harder and harder for the state corporatist actors in the state to control people's thought because you're going to have encryption and all this. So copyright's already being undermined by torrenting and the internet. And I think a, something similar could happen with 3D printing if it ever matures to a, a certain level. Yeah, I mean, it's already at a certain level, but it's pretty primitive. I think we're in the we're not even the dot matrix phase. Like if you analogize it to printers, if you remember printers when we were kids, dot matrix was great, but compared to now, we have color laser printers, right? Whatever. You, you could probably even buy a book printing machine that could. I don't even know why these Barnes and Nobles don't have book printing kiosks that like you go in there if there's they're missing a book you hit a button and in 10 minutes you have the actual book but maybe they'll get there someday but uh, when, when covid lockdown is over but i do think that 3d printing might mean the end of the patent monopoly because if you have a 3d printer that could print an iphone let's say now that, i know that's a long way off but mm-hmm. it may be intermediate things and there's one in the in the library down the street or the basement down the street or eventually in your own house, then that will undermine the patent system too. So I think the patent and the copyright system, because they're unnatural, are doomed. And I, I'm confident in that. It's just a matter of time. The fiat money system and Bitcoin and their interrelationship, I all I can say is what I've already said. I do think we will have digital money someday. And I do think it will be something like a Bitcoin because – the non-scarce versions that could be copied won't work. And honestly, I've never quite understood the difference between proof of work and proof of uh, the other system. Stake. Yeah. Uh, proof of stake. From what I can understand, I tend to think the proof of work Bitcoin idea makes more sense. But I do think some digital 
money that can replicate the scarcity features of a commodity is going to be what's going to emerge. And it'll be great. It'll be the universal money, and we'll have deflating prices all the time. Everything will get cheaper every year. There'll be no inflation, no censorship. Government can't control it. I just hope that in their death throes, when this kills the government systems, because they rely upon the central banking system now, I hope they don't nuke the planet to stop it. You know, So that's why I'm hoping for what the analog of a soft landing, like after a recession, I hope for a soft landing. I hope we have a soft landing, and we that's kind of my <laughs> my dream on this issue. All right. Well, it's been an interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Where can people find you if they want to see you in different places? I'm N.S. Kinsella on Twitter and Facebook, and I have a website, stephankinsella.com. Yeah, the only other thing I would mention is that I have a, I've been working on a book for a while, which should be out in the next, say, two or three months. I'll probably self-publish it, but it's a collection, an edited collection of my libertarian legal theory writings, and it's going to be called Law in a Libertarian World, and that'll be available for free online and also on Amazon and places like that. So that'll be out in probably two or three months. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Stefan Kinsella can be found at Stefan Kinsella at, on Twitter and StefanKinsella.com. Until next time, Fiat Delenda Est.